Today's passage is John 4, verse 1 to 42. This is the word of God. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank, it, drank from it himself and it his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Women, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him was, must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled at uh, that he was talking with the women, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come and see a man who told me all that I have did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, have anyone, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? 
Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is re re receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from, this, from that town believed in him because of the women's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Good morning. My name is Bill Smith, and I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Mainline. We are continuing our teaching series today in the book of John. Now, we've been watching Jesus as he engages different people, and we're noticing that he does so in different ways. Today's encounter gets to the heart of why he's engaging people at all. It gets to the purpose that's driving all of his encounters. It will help us understand the reason why he invites some to come and see, to come and experience him or why with others he renames them, or why with others he does some kind of miraculous intervention, or why, like last week, he talks to people about the nature of true spirituality. We're going to look at the theme that tracks through his life, that makes sense of everything that he says and everything that he does. It's what guides him regardless of what the world throws at him. That's one of the things that you're going to need if you want to live well. One of the constants, one of the few constants in our world is change. It's uncertainty. This world is going to continually throw things at you that you don't expect and that you don't see coming. Things are going to change your plans. They're going to call for you to have a different response than you were intending. You're not always going to feel like you know what the best response is. I was thinking about these things earlier this week, had a conversation on Zoom with a woman, and, and she I thought, put this the same kind of things in a really nice, tight little package. She said, the world feels like it's constantly changing right now, and I just don't know what to do. And I thought as I heard that, I thought, you sh you're speaking for a lot of us. If you don't have something inside, some internal compass that keeps you oriented in life, something that guides you through life, you're going to be bounced around by life every time that it throws something new at you. You're going to feel pushed around. You're going to feel at the mercy of forces that are bigger than you are. Now, here's the good news. Jesus knows exactly what that feels like. Jesus lived in the same world. Things happened that were outside his control. It sounds really strange to say it that way. But the Son of God had things happen to him that made him change his immediate plans. And yet, those things did not change his underlying purpose. The details of what he was doing changed. They had to change. But the reason behind what he did did not change. And because he had that reason firmly fixed in his mind, that internal compass, he could enter into any situation. The details really didn't matter in one sense because he still was able to accomplish what he came to do. Larger forces in the world changed where he was doing what he was doing. They changed who he was doing it with. But those forces didn't change why he was doing it. Those forces did not reshape his mission. What guided him through this world instead came from inside of him. 
you hear that in today's passage. Very opening verse, you learn that Jesus is gaining and baptizing more people than John the Baptist. His ministry is now outstripping John's. It's supposed to. John knows that. John thinks that's actually a good thing. Some of his disciples are a little upset by this development. John tells them, chapter 3, verse 29, that this change in his own ministry, it fills him with joy. He's very aware that Jesus must increase, he must decrease. In other words, John is telling you the kingdom of God is on the move. It's advancing. It's a good thing. There's no need to think that it's going to do anything but be on the move, that Jesus is going to stay there. He's going to gain more and more followers. And then chapter 4, verse 1, you hear this wrench get thrown into things. The Pharisees are aware that Jesus is gaining more disciples. It's not a good thing. It's not time for Jesus to go head to head with them, so he decides to leave. He's been down in Judea, and he decides to go back north in Israel uh, to Galilee. Something just happened, something that he was not anticipating, something that was outside his control that required him to change his plans. The Pharisees have learned what he was doing. If he stays there, it's going to create bigger problems, so he leaves. Forces intervened in his world to reshape how he was carrying out his mission. But those forces did not reshape the mission. They just relocated it. And in fact, those unexpected changes worked to spread Jesus' mission in even more wide ways than it was before. It looks like they're shutting down Jesus' ministry momentum down there in Judea, but in the, in the end, they're creating new opportunities for the gospel message so that it now starts to impact the area of Samaria. But that only happens because Jesus knows three things. He knows what God is doing in the larger world. He knows who God is doing it with, and he knows his part to play in what God is doing. And those are the same three things that you need to know now if you're going to handle the uncertainty of the times that you live in, that I live in. The times when you have absolutely no idea what's going to pop up next in your news feed and what impact that next thing is going to have on your own life. You may not know what to do about any of these macro-level things that are taking place in our modern world. You may not have a lot of wisdom about pandemics, economic downturns, job insecurity, racism, social unrest. You may not have a contribution to make at the macro level, but if you know the three things that Jesus knew, then you'll know what to do in the nitty-gritty details of your own life. You'll know what to do with the people that you rub up against in life. So if you want to have a life that's not blown back and forth with every event that takes place on this, let me say it this way, this chaotic planet, you're also going to need to know what God is doing, who God is doing it with, and what your part is in that. Knowing those three things is going to give you stability, and it's going to give you a lasting purpose in life, even when everything else is in flux. So first, what is God doing? Verse 23, Jesus says to this woman that he's just met, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. So what is the Father doing? What is God doing in this world? He's seeking worshipers. That's his goal. It's, behind, it's his goal that's behind everything that he's done in our history since the Garden of Eden. He's looking for people who will worship him in spirit and truth. Now, that's a contrast to how the Samaritan woman is thinking about 
God. She's thinking more in religious terms. She tries to lure Jesus into a theological debate that she thinks there's no answer to. A few verses earlier, verse 20, she had said to him, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. This is where we Samaritans worship. But you say that in Jerusalem. You Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And she thinks she's giving him a conundrum, a theological problem, that riddle that no one can answer. My people say this, your people say that. There's no way to break the impasse, right? So we can just be done with our conversation. Jesus pushes past that. And he says to her, it's not about a place where your ancestors carried out an activity. That is not what worship is. That's not the goal toward which God is moving. In other words, Jesus doesn't want to talk with her about her forefathers, whom she never met, whom she's not going to ever spend any time getting to know. He wants to focus instead on the father who made her, someone that she could actually have a relationship with. He wants to talk about a person, not a place. He wants to talk about a relationship, not a religious activity. And so he goes on, verse 24, God is spirit. He's not physical, and therefore he's not physically located, and that means the, that location is not the issue. Location is physical, it's not spiritual. Location is not the issue. All the other physical stuff that we associate with worship, that's not the issue. Kneeling, sitting, standing, liturgies, all those are not key issues. The key issue is spirit. And therefore the question is, what's up with your spirit? How is your spirit oriented inside? In which direction is your spirit pointed? The Father is seeking worshipers, worshipers in spirit. And what Jesus just said is, you can have all the right things. You can be in the right place. You can be doing the right things. And it might not be worship if it's not spirit. You won't be one of the worshipers then that the Father is speaking if your spirit is not tuned into him. Jesus is saying here, worship is relational. It's a connection to the Father such that you orient everything that you have around him, starting with the most basic part of you, your spirit. When your spirit is oriented to God, you worship. That means that you're one of the ones that the Father is seeking. Now, sometimes the language of worship is hard for us as modern people. We're not used to thinking like that. And so oftentimes when we talk about worship, we start thinking about things like the Samaritan woman did. We start thinking about what temples, idols, churches, buildings, things that we do. It's hard for us to get on board exactly with what Jesus is talking about. Beyond that, it also sounds to our ears a little bit like God's kind of needy. He's seeking worshipers. And you think, well, why is that? Is he insecure? He, he needs people to praise him and tell him how great he is? Why? To pump up his ego? You think, what's going on here? And part of the problem that we get into is that sometimes when we talk about God, when we talk about the things of God, we unconsciously have a division in our mind. And we, we unconsciously create two different categories. We have religious categories and we have daily life categories and the two are relatively distinct. And so we think about normal daily life and we think what? We think dishes, we think diapers, we think driving, we think doctors. And then there's religious life. That's where God goes and church and singing and sermons. Normal life, religious life, the two are relatively separate from a, a, a lot of us in our minds. That's normal. A lot of people think like that. But when you think like that, it's very difficult then to understand what's taking place here in John. What, what is this worship? Because worship sounds like it's divorced from everyday life. 
like it fits in the religious category, not the normal category. When I get into places like this where I start to struggle a little bit, I find it really helpful to ask, does the thing that I'm looking at, in this case, worship, does this thing show up in regular life somewhere that would help me understand it better? Can I see what worship looks like in regular life that might help me understand why God would be seeking worshipers? And when you ask it that way, you realize that worship happens all around you all the time. Let's just take sports as an example. I have a friend whose sons love going to Eagles games, and when they do, they will regularly send their dad a video of the entire stadium standing up when the Eagles score singing, Fly, Eagles, Fly. Now, what is that? It's a kind of worship. It's a public acknowledgement by a community that they have just seen something that they value and believe is so great, they just what they, they have to say something about it. They have to express themselves. They've invested a lot of time. They've invested a ton of money just to be there for that moment. They don't care who sees them standing up. They don't care who hears them singing. What do they want to do? They want to join together in public praise. It's a corporate time of worship. Now, I want you to suppose that you're at that game. You're standing along with everybody else. You're singing, and someone taps you on the shoulder. And they kind of lean over, and, and, and they say, you know, I, I'm struggling here. I, I, I don't know. I, I mean, isn't it a little weird that we praise the eagles? I mean, are they really that insecure? That they need us to prop them up right now to, to, to tell them how great they are? Are they really that needy? Besides, you know, I, I really don't like to sing. I don't really see the point. I'm not good at it. So I'm just going to stand here quietly while all the rest of you do this thing. If someone said that, what are they telling you? They're telling you they don't understand worship. They're telling you they don't understand how to rightly express worship. They're telling you that they don't understand the point of praise. So you don't praise someone first and foremost because they need it. You praise them because you just saw something great. And it would be wrong to stay quiet. It would be wrong not to call attention to it. It would be wrong because if you kept quiet, you'd be pretending, you know, that really wasn't that big a deal. Again, let's think about the Eagles. Imagine you're there at the game. And as you're watching, Deshaun Jackson repeats his miracle at the Meadowlands. He receives a punt, dodges the first tackle, gets a block, starts moving on up the field, makes a couple other guys miss, and then there's just him and the punter. He gets around the punter, sprints into the end zone, and then just as the clock expires, he scores the winning touchdown. Now, I want you to imagine that you're there at the stadium. You just saw this in front of you, and nobody in the stadium moves. No one stands up. No one says a word. No one applauds, no one high-fives, no one roars. There is just complete and utter, absolute silence. You would say in that moment, these people don't know how to acknowledge something great. They don't know how to acknowledge greatness. They don't know how to praise. You would say that they were the broken and needy ones, not Deshaun Jackson. Or you would realize that they were in a stadium that only held people from the other team. People who had not come to praise the Eagles because what they worshipped, 
what they thought was more praiseworthy was the other team. And that's the problem of the human race. We are in God's stadium. We're in his world. We see all the amazing, incredible things that he has done. We see the beauty of creation. We see the complexity of organic lives. We see the infinity of the universe. We see utter glory every time we see a sunrise. You know, two sunrises are never the same. They're all individual. We see that every single day. And yet the problem with the human race is we see all of that and we sit there in complete and utter silence because we're caught up with something else, worshiping something else. That's what the Bible calls idolatry. We find something else more wonderful, more delightful than we find God. We think that there's something out there that, that's worth our time and our money more than he is. Something that gets our attention more than he does, even though it never gives us the return that we're hoping it's going to give, yet we keep trying it anyway. We're broken worshipers. We're worshiping the wrong thing. The philosopher Peter Kreef marvels at this completely unscientific approach to life, how we don't learn from our experiments in broken worship in idolatry. And he concludes this way, quote, we are addicts. That's the only explanation for the amazing fact that the whole human race idiotically tries the same experiment over and over again with endless little variations, even though it has failed every single time, billions and billions of times. You think, well, what experiment is he talking about that's failed billions of times? The experiment of idolatry, of hoping to find happiness and joy and fulfillment an adequate and final meaning in this world, trying to find the summum bonum, the highest good, in the creature rather than the creator. He goes on, in light of the dismal track record of this vehicle of idolatry, it is amazing that we keep gassing it up, we keep gassing up idolatry, putting it on the road again. It's more than amazing. It's insanity. The human race is spiritually insane, unquote. Now, what is he saying? To continue to pursue, to worship, to build your life around something that never pays off like you hoped it would, to keep on doing that over and over and over and over and over again is what? It's insane. The evidence is against you, but you keep doing it anyway. That's spiritual insanity. And that's when you realize that God is not seeking worshipers because he needs our worship. It's because we need to learn to worship rightly. Somewhere along the way, we went spiritually insane. We've gotten captured by something else that we thought was better than he is. And so we've oriented our lives around something other than the Father who gave us life. We have oriented our lives around things that he created, thinking that, man, they're, they're, they're going to be better than he ever could be. And God, in his mercy, does not leave us to our insanity. He seeks us out. He looks for people who what? Who need to see his greatness. Who need to see what they've been missing. Who need to worship what is best, what is good, what is fulfilling, what's satisfying. That's what God has been doing ever since humanity rejected him in the Garden of Eden. It's what he has done through every age of this tortured planet. It's what he's done through every plague, through every political upheaval, through every rise and every fall of every civilization. It's what he was doing there at the well outside a Samaritan village. 
It's what he's doing right now in your home. It's what he's doing with your family, with your friends. It's what he's doing in your neighborhood and at your workplace. He's seeking worshipers. That's his goal. That's what underlies all of history. So if you want your life to count, if you want it to have stability, when everything around you is unstable, don't let anything distract you from what God is doing. That's number one. You have to know that God is seeking worshipers. Underneath of everything else that happens in this world, that's what's going to last when all the rest of history fades away. That's number one. Second, you want to ask, who is God offering, making this offer to? Who is he seeking to have worship him? Who is he coming to so that they can see what they've not been seeing so that what? So that they can actually worship. Who's he offering this to? Clearly in this account, it's this woman that Jesus meets at the well. But if you think about it for just a little bit, you realize there's a lot of reasons why this conversation should never have taken place. There's lots of obstacles between her and Jesus. There's a lot of barriers. I don't have time to unpack each one of them. I'm I'm basically going to list several. If you're interested, email me. We can talk. We can dialogue a little bit more about the other ones. I want to give you a sense, though, of how big the gulf is between her and Jesus. First, there's a racial divide. The Jews hated the Samaritans, and the Samaritans know it. It's one of the very first things that this lady says to him in verse 9. She says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And John explains, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. She's saying, our races don't get along. What business do you have of asking me for anything? It's number one, there's a racial divide, but her question is actually a twofer. It's allied with a gender gap. She emphasizes that she's a woman when she answers. And you think, why does she do that? I'm a woman of Samaria. It's because in that culture, men were not supposed to be alone with a woman uh, that they're not related to. They're not supposed to be talking to a woman that they meet in the street. You just wouldn't do that if you were a male. You certainly wouldn't do that if you're a rabbi. It's not just she who who knows this. When the disciples come back, verse 27, they marveled that he was talking with a woman. They're surprised. There's a racial divide. There's a gender gap that are keeping her and Jesus apart. But there's also the social stigma around her sexuality. She's had five husbands and is now sleeping with a guy she's not married to. And that's a problem for her in her society. You think for a moment about what it means that she is coming out to the well, probably about a half mile outside of town, coming out to the well by herself at the heat of the day. She's coming at noon. She's coming when the rest of the community would have done what? They'd have come out in the morning. And they'd have come out together. She is coming by herself at noon. She's coming at a time where she expects nobody else to be there. She knows how other people think about her. She knows she's living on the margins of her society. She knows she doesn't fit into polite society. That's why she can barely get an answer out when Jesus asks her in verse 16 to go tell her husband and to bring him back with her. Very talkative woman until you get to that. And she says, I have no husband. Huge divide between her and Jesus based on how she approaches her sexuality. And she knows it instinctively. A lot of barriers to this conversation. Racial divides, gender inequality, sexual stigma. You could change this setting, you get rid of the well and realize we could still have this conversation today. 
the particular content of those three categories, race, gender, sexuality, might change, but the categories are still with us, like they were 2,000 years ago, and they're still used to keep people apart. What are you seeing here? You're seeing that after the Garden of Eden, after humanity rejected God, we simultaneously rejected unity, social harmony. Those are not normal for us. Division now is normal. You see here, 2,000 years ago, what you see all around you right now in our country. You see that 2,000 years of discussion, 2,000 years of education, 2,000 years of various cultural and political revolutions, 2,000 years has not solved this problem. The problem is that we keep finding ways to take all the creative creativity, all the energy that God has lovingly built into each one of us, we take all of that to use it to what? To keep people separated. To put them in boxes of our own making that justify now why we don't have to deal with each other. Why do we don't have to engage with each other? We do that as individuals. We do that as societies. This lady's society, Jesus' society, they constructed ways of keeping people from each other. Ways of putting people who they'd never met into small constricted boxes that did what sealed them off from each other. Boxes ensured that they would never interact with each other, especially as you multiply the number of boxes. See, the more boxes you have, the less interaction and conversation you can have. The more boxes you have, the more that you tend to think, okay, maybe the Father might be seeking worshipers, but not from someone who fits into that box. And certainly not someone who fits into the combination of all those boxes. These people use their God-given gifts to construct a preview of hell, not of heaven. A preview of the coming isolation of hell, not the community of heaven. An isolation that would deny this lady an opportunity to escape that hell by becoming a worshiper of the God who made her. And yet, despite all the reasons there might be for Jesus not to spend a moment of time with her, he does. He initiates a conversation with her. He doesn't quit. He engages her. He does not let her provoke him or blow him off until what? Until he's revealed the Messiah to her. And you realize that somehow, during the length of that conversation, she's become a worshiper. Say, wait a minute, how, how do you know that? Well, it's like what Jesus just said to Nicodemus in chapter 3. We saw this last week. He told him, you can't see the wind, but you can measure the effect that it has. That's what it's like for someone born of the Spirit. You can't see how or when the Spirit enters into them, but you can see the impact the Spirit has in rebirthing them. So take a look at this lady. You have no idea when or how the Spirit entered into her at, to make her a worshiper, but look at what comes out of her life. And you can't help but see what he's done. Because her life has changed. It's not what it was. Verse 28, she leaves her water jar there at the well. This was the thing that she came for that, morning, the, that afternoon, the physical water. Somehow that's forgotten. Why? Something else has taken its place. Jesus promised her, verse 14, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You realize when she leaves her jar, that's happened. There's something inside of her now so that her physical thirst is forgotten. 
Something is bubbling up inside of her that's more important, it's more powerful. It energizes her in ways that physical water never did. Or you can look at what she does, where she goes. She goes back to town and she talks to the people that earlier she had avoided being around. She tells them, verse 29, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Think about that for a moment. Nothing in her life has changed. There's been no time for people to see any kind of change. And yet, she goes out to this society that sees her and thinks about her still in exactly the same way that they always have. But now, those barriers between her and others, the ones that she tried to throw up between her and Jesus, those barriers don't matter to her anymore. She now cares more about the people than she cares about how they view her. And so she initiates conversations with them like Jesus initiated a conversation with her. Talks to men and women, insiders, outsiders, sexually pure or otherwise, it doesn't matter to her. And she doesn't feel a need to guard and protect herself from them. And so she talks freely about her past. Here's a guy who told me everything that I ever did. She's not trying to hide it. She's met somebody who loves her, who does not shame her. And now she's not ashamed to go to others and talk about him. And she uses her own life to do so. Somehow she knows that since he loves her, their opinion of her can't change her. Their opinion of her was never able to transform her before, never could make her into a better person, realizes now it has no power to make her a worse person. It no longer controls what she does and doesn't do. The boxes no longer mean what they used to mean. She's no longer living in them. She's escaped from them. She's escaped from the boxes that she grew up with and lived with all her life. Boxes that were formed long before she was born. Boxes that continued long after she died into the present day. Boxes that the world still doesn't know what to do with. And yet she's escaped. You think, how? It was by meeting someone who's bigger than the boxes. Someone who could make her a worshiper of something bigger than the boxes. Of someone who's bigger than the boxes. It's an amazing story. But you have to ask why. Why bother with her? Why did Jesus do it? Why go through all that work? What did he see in her? She is definitely not easy to work with. She throws up walls. She tries to push him back. She tries to stay in her own box. She tries to make sure that he stays in his. And he, he keeps talking with her. Why is that? Why her? Here's the answer. And... Let me prep you. It's going to sound like a letdown until you get the truth of it. Why her? Because she's the person in front of him. Because she's there in front of him. That's it. That's the whole reason. He had not planned to be there that day. He was in Judea, ministry going great, but he needed to leave. He's sitting here, tired from the journey, verse 6, hungry, waiting for the disciples to get back, but he knows something. He knows what the Father is doing, seeking worshipers. Therefore, that's what Jesus is doing. He's not distracted by the events around him. He's not distracted by how he feels in that moment. He's seeking those worshipers wherever he is from whomever he's around. It's the same reason that he talks with the disciples when they get back. Think about that conversation he has with them. He doesn't need that conversation. He doesn't need to know that the, the Harvest field is ready to be harvested. He already knows that. He's been harvesting while they've been away. 
He doesn't need that conversation. They do. And because they're the ones in front of him and because he knows what the Father is doing, seeking worshipers, he talks to them, helps them to see what the Father is doing. It's the same reason why he talks with the people in the town. They come out to see him. They're the ones now who are in front of him. So verse 40, when they ask him to stay with them, he does. Spend another two days with them, unscheduled stop, talking with them. So that verse 41, many more believed because of his word. Many more believed because he spent time talking with whom? With the people who were in front of him. It really is that simple. Jesus is constantly talking and engaging with people who just randomly seem to pop up on his radar. Why? He's looking for worshipers from among any person who, that he encounters. Do they all become worshipers? Well, clearly not. But he gives all of them the opportunity to do so. You realize here, ministry just is not that hard. You take the opportunity, you take every opportunity to see if God is at work in the person in front of you. You know that he's seeking worshipers, and therefore it could be that he's seeking the person who's standing right in front of you, at work, in your living room, as you meet someone in the store. You recognize that Jesus is calling people to worship the Father. That was the way that he walked through life. Now, before we move on to the third point, I want to take a moment and just talk about something uh, now that this woman is a worshiper. Because I think the question sort of lurks in the back of my mind. I know it lurks in the back of my mind. Maybe it lurks in yours. Does this mean, now that she's a worshiper, that all of those other issues, they, they really didn't matter? Does the fact that God has called her to be a worshiper mean that he really doesn't care about all of those other issues? He doesn't address race. He doesn't address, address gender, kind of sort of at a slant addresses sexuality. He doesn't care about the theological... What are those then? Are, are these just preferences? God doesn't care? You realize, well, clearly not. God still believes the seventh commandment about not committing adultery. This Samaritan woman is going to have to do something about her living situation. Who knows what that's going to be? She's either going to, what, need to get married, go back to being single. But that all happens when? After someone becomes a worshiper, not before. Her background cannot keep her from becoming a worshiper. Your background cannot keep you from becoming a worshiper. But her background and your background is not something you try to clean up in order to be a worshiper. It's part of life that changes as you worship. It's going to be true for her in the way that she thinks about race, gender, theology, sexuality. As she worships this one who created race, gender, sexuality, theology, he's going to share his thoughts with her on those things. And over time, she's going to discover that her thinking gradually lines up more and more with his views. Worship first. It's only then do you become like what you worship. Only then can you become like what you worship. So first, if you want to have an internal compass in an unstable world, you have to know what God is doing that he's seeking worshipers. Second, you have to know who he's doing this with, that he's seeking everywhere all the time. Third, you need to know your part in this, that you now seek others like Jesus has sought you. That's, again, what you see this woman doing. She gives herself to doing what God is doing. She seeks others to introduce them to the Messiah so that they too can become worshipers. 
What's amazing here is how little she knows about the Messiah. She's hardly met Jesus. But already he's made such a change in her life that she wants other people to know him. That's amazing. I find it incredibly convicting. Jesus walks around on earth expecting people to be interested in God, to want to be worshipers, even if they put up a bit of a fight along the way. He believes, verse 35, that the spiritual harvest fields are ready to be harvested, and so he's out there looking for who's ready. He expects people to be interested. This woman expects other people to be interested. That's why she goes back to the town. The disciples, however, don't expect anyone to be interested. Jesus says to them when they get back from town, verse 35, Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. That means ripe. They're ready to be harvested. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true. One sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labor and you've entered into their labor. If you think about it, what he's saying here is he's both urging them on in the mission and he's rebuking them. He's saying to them, look, open your eyes. The harvest is ready. Other people have been sowing. I sent you to reap. It's what I called you for. It's why you're my disciples. That's why you're following me. But when you went to town, you did not come back with a harvest. You came back with lunch. These are his disciples, handpicked by him. But they're not fully on board yet with what the Father is doing. They went into town, but they didn't invite anybody in the town to come back out to meet with Jesus, to consider, maybe this is the Messiah. Would you at least like to come out and listen to him? But that is what the woman does. She also went into town, but she didn't come back with lunch. She came back with the town. She came back with people. Left to the disciples, there would be no revival in that town. There would be no conversations about faith and spiritual things. There would be no hope or expectation that people could be right with God, that they could escape from the boxes that they'd lived in all their lives, that they could be right with each other. Left to the disciples, there would be what? There'd be lunch. There'd be a brief pause around the well after lunch. One of them would say, well, guess we should probably pack up, get on with our journey. Wouldn't want to miss out on any ministry opportunities we're going to have, right? They don't know why they're here. Thank God Jesus did know why they were here. He knew why he was here. So they're trying to push food on him, and he tells them, verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus might be physically hungry, but he knows why he's here. He knows that he's here to change people, to transform them so that they know why they're here. That's why there's hope. The woman might be thirsty. She left her jar there at the well, but she now knows why she's here. And at some point, the disciples will also know that. This is not the final word on the disciples. It's an unflattering word, but it's not the final word. These are the same guys that you read about in the book of Acts who ended up evangelizing the world, turning it upside down, 
Why? Because Jesus didn't come just to do the will of God. He came to accomplish God's work. That's what he says. I came to accomplish the work of God, to finish it. And that was going to take more than a chance encounter at a well. It's going to take more than two days teaching people in a village. It's going to take more than all of the teaching, the counseling, all of the miracles that he poured into the disciples. To finish that work, he's going to have to go to the cross. See, the Father is doing something that's impossible. The Father is seeking worshipers among idolaters. That means it's not enough just to seek us. Jesus also has to save us. That's what the town recognized when they said in verse 42 that he's the savior of the world. It's because people need both. We need that living water inside that, that Jesus promised to give us. And we need some way for, to pay for every time that we have relied on something other than living water. We need to be saved and Jesus is the one who's going to save us. That's why he went to the cross. It was there that he would drink down all of the idolatrous attempts of his people, all the false worship. All the attempts to find satisfaction in this world rather than satisfaction in God. And when he drank that down, it would leave his soul utterly parched. From the cross, he would say, I thirst. The one who gives living water to other people would say, I'm spiritually parched. And then he said, it's finished. There's nothing left to do. I accomplished the work the Father gave me to do. And then he died. Now, why did he do that? Because he couldn't stand the thought of you gasping and choking for eternity. Cut off from God, isolated from everybody else, locked in the box of your own making. And so Jesus chose to thirst for you. To take away the dryness of your idolatry so that he could give you a spring of water that wells up inside of you to eternal life. A spring that would so satisfy you that you would never be thirsty again. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, I pray for my own heart and my brothers and sisters, Lord, that you would energize us, that we would be passionate about being worshipers, that you would give us from your spirit so that we want nothing else in this world other than you. Lord, I pray for some who are listening today that you would open their eyes to see the dryness, the dustiness of what they've worshipped and the goodness that you offer to them. I pray, Lord, that you would seek worshipers right now. And I pray that you would bring people to yourself, Lord, that you would release us from all of our small boxes that keep us closed off from you and closed off from each other. And ask that you would do this in Jesus' name.